In Ethics of the Fathers, there is a rabbi who says, Repent one day before your death. The rabbi is Rabbi Eliezer. What the statement is saying is, you should always make sure to repent right before you die. Put another way, to live each day as if it were your last. Right? Because how do you repent one day before you die? The only way to do it is to constantly be in this state of repentance, constantly be in this state of evaluation about your life saying, what did I do up until now that I can now fix? Because we never know when it's the end. We never know when we're going to die. So by constantly living in a state of repentance, we're constantly living each day as if it were our last. And that will help us make sure that we were able to follow through and be able to do that where one day before we die, we have done a personal accounting and figured out what we did well and what we did not well, and perhaps do some personal repentance for the things that we haven't done so well. And that could mean just admitting it to ourselves. Each person has a higher power of their own understanding to bring in some literature from some of those 12-step programs. Each person has a God of their own understanding or a higher power of their own understanding. So repentance might be a personal thing for you, well, it's going to be a personal thing no matter what, but it may be just between you and you, and it may be just between you and God. But either way, if you always make sure to live in a state of repentance, as with everything, don't go overboard. Try and stick to the middle ground with this. Try and have some aspect of contemplation, have some aspect of repentance to your life. Because it's always good to see where you've been and to reevaluate the things that you've gone through lately. Let's talk more about this live each day as if it were your last. Our guest today, who I will be introducing soon, has been through some wild stuff, starting even from when he was a kid up until now. The stories that he tells, they're really wild, and I can't wait to share them with you. I can't wait for him to share them with you as well. And one underlying thematic element that I keep on noticing with these stories is live each day as if it's your last. And we did discuss this in the interview. We do touch upon this, but every person in the world would be able to live a better life if they were living each day as if it were their last. Perhaps not having that fight that they had. Perhaps being kinder to the people around them. Perhaps making decisions that would affect the entire world in a positive way. So the more that we're able to pretend to some degree, again, right, creating an element in your mind where you're constantly worried about death, that's not healthy. But having some quiet contemplation time and some quiet self-reflection time to think back and say, hey, you know, if this was it, how do I feel about where I've come so far? And are there any aspects to my life that I feel like I should adjust or change or improve? You know, that could be very healthy and it can be it can be a big growth factor for you to help you grow, to help you become a better person than you ever were or to become a better person than you are now, or whatever it is. Living each day as if it were your last is is something that can just help us all. Help us all grow, help us all be more focused on what's really important, what's truly important. There's a book I read a few years ago. It's called The Priority List. Basically, there was this high school teacher who found out that he had brain cancer. And not just brain cancer, like the malignant type of brain cancer that is basically a death sentence and he writes a book he writes a little memoir before he dies and what he had done before he ever found out about this you know he was like the cool teacher what he did before he ever found out about this is he used to do a few times a year 
I believe he would have his kids write up a priority list, you know, right to six to 10 or eight to 12 things that are the most important to you right now. And he writes that it was a fascinating thing to see that these priority lists would change over time. You know, maybe right now family would be most important. Maybe friends would be most important. And if you do a new priority list five years later when they've started a family or started a job or 10 years later when they've started a family or whatever it is, their priority list has changed. So each one of us has our own priorities and that's totally fine. But making sure to focus on your priorities means that when you go to sleep at night, you know that you've lived the best life that you could have lived up until now. And yeah, your priorities can change. And that's okay too. But then as long as you're focusing your life on what your priorities are, you're always living the best life that you possibly can. And life is dynamic. Too many people put us humans into a static position. Well, you're all about this when I knew you two years ago. So how could you have changed so much? Well, we're human. We're dynamic. We change. We change constantly, sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worst. But we constantly change. That is the one definite item about somebody's life is that they're going to change. And unfortunately, there are some people who may not change drastically or may not change that much, or they may change for the worse. But what I've seen a lot of times is that people tend to change for the better. Anyways, I can't recommend that book enough, The Priority List. I'll have a link in the show notes. It's an eye-opening book. It's a little bit sad because it does deal with death and it does deal with end-of-life scenarios, and it does deal with some pretty heavy stuff, but it's contemplative, and it really helps to focus the mind on what's really important. This is the Way to Greatness podcast, where we explore the journey from failure and mediocrity to success and greatness. And now your host, Ari Gunsberg. Our guest today is Richard Hudson. I met Richard when I was in Toronto for a speech. Richard has been through a lot, from hospitals to scouting, from computers to sailboats, from kayaking to exploring, and more. Richard has been all over the world, mostly on his sailboat, and he gives presentations detailing his expeditions and travels. A little later in the show, we are going to delve into Richard's near-death experience on one of his expeditions, an experience I'm hoping Richard will write a book about one day. Richard, welcome to the show. I'm really psyched that you agreed to do this. Oh, thanks, Ari. Glad you asked. If it's okay with you, I'm going to start with your childhood. Sure. Okay. What was it like growing up with asthma? I I grew up before they had good medicines. And it it was difficult. I spent a lot of time in in hospitals just not being able to breathe. And as this is as a kid, right? So you're, you're sort of, you're not really all that consciously aware at first, you just, yep. you know, you're not, you're not thinking about breathing, but you're not breathing. And breathing was always a struggle. And something that I was, I was constantly reminded of as I got older, that I had to be very careful. I had to be very careful not to do things that would set off my asthma. I, I had to, 
always thinking a lot. And a lot of that was exercise. That was exercise and being around things I was allergic to, like dust or grass and trees and pollen and all sorts of things outside and, and, and the exercise. So I, I, I had to be very careful all the time. That resulted in spending a lot of time inside, not, not doing sports. I couldn't really do them. And a, a lot of time in hospitals, in oxygen tents and, and meeting other people with the severe asthma. It wasn't until I was 12 or 13 that they got better medicines. But in my younger years, I was constantly struggling with breathing and surviving as a result of that. And yeah. I, was, I was in this, they did this day camp for uh, kids with severe asthma in Toronto. And uh, one of the guys in that camp, he had, he had it uh, more severely than me. He was pretty much permanently a hospital resident. And, and he actually died when he was 15. Oh, and that, wow. that really, uh, of asthma or well, either of asthma or from an overdose of the medicines to combat the asthma. But, you know, the, you never take that unless that was administered in the hospital because he, had, he wasn't breathing. So that, that affected me. You know, it was really an indication of, you know, just you just got real, a real strong reminder. You don't know how long you're going to be on this earth. Right. You said before, I just want to touch upon a few of the points you made. You said before you spent time in oxygen tents. Can you describe what it was like living in an oxygen tent? It was, I mean, you could, you could open it up and, and you could talk to people, but that's people who are visiting you like, like your parents, but you couldn't, do it for you really needed to spend most of your time in there i remember it as damp and cool as in cold as in not exactly cold but cool and moist and everything looks funny through the plastic right and you're just not able to go anywhere confined to it it's almost like a prison huh you're, you're confined it it is yeah you're you're not able to go anywhere so i i, I had a lot of time to read books and i would find out about the world through books right. and that gave me a strong desire to see the world. I wanted to see the world. I wanted to get away from this, uh, away from the tent, this, this tent, this, this being trapped in that. And, and that, that gave me a strong desire to, to go out and do things and to see the world. Right. And you described to me previously that you spent much of your childhood as a sickly child, quote unquote. How did that, shape your childhood experience and your view on life back then yeah that 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 meant i spent a lot of time reading and dreaming of of going out and doing things and and seeing things and more time in your head and less in your body per se that's correct yeah more time in my head less in my body not 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 enough time doing sports <laughs> not, <Right. laughs> not not enough time doing things i really enjoyed uh other other than reading yeah my escape. Right. And then before you were saying that your entire life changed when you turned 12 or so and the better medicines became available, what was that like having your entire world changed based on just a medicine? That was fantastic. That was, you know, it, it, it allowed me to do things I couldn't do before. It, it was truly fantastic. Was it an entire, like every aspect of your life changed or was it just some parts? Well, I was pretty young. So uh, I, I, I would probably say all um, most parts yeah. it's, it's a it's a long time ago uh but yeah suddenly i was able to do a whole bunch a whole bunch of uh, outdoor stuff that i could never think of doing before as long as i had this inhaler with me 
I, I had to right. make sure never to forget the inhaler that, that, that was, that hung over your head though. That, <laughs> that, that hung over my head, but it was that I could do it at all. It was just absolutely fantastic. And, and it allowed me to start doing things that I always wanted to do, but couldn't before. Absolutely. You mentioned just before that one of your friends from asthma camp had died. Yeah. What did that do to you and your psyche? That, that was this big reminder of mortality that I, this could happen to me too. And right. uh, there was no predicting it. There is nothing that could be done about it. And it, it was a reason, it, it was something that stuck with me for many years. It was, it was a reason to, to want a reminder of how important it is to, to live your life the way you want to live it and to do the things you want to do because it's, it's actually not any different for anyone else. You know, anyone could have an accident or fall ill and all of a sudden your, your life changes. And right. if, if, you, if you live each day is thinking, well, you know, if this is the last day of my life, would I be happy with what I've done so far? If you, if you keep asking yourself that, you do things, you know, you, you probably spend less time on video games and drinking. Right. Yeah, and more on the, the things you really want to do with your life. More focused on your goals. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It, it gives you uh, an incentive to focus on your goals and, and, and to think about what you enjoy and what you want to do. And, and it, it just it provides that reminder and gives you that focus. Honestly, I feel like everybody could benefit from a viewpoint like that. You know, any anytime you take the time to contemplate, hey, we're not here forever. Where have I been and where am I going? Yeah. As long as you don't get stuck in that morbid state of mind, it can be tremendously helpful for helping to somebody to achieve their goals, to see what they want to do, to see how to move forward because nothing sharpens the focus quite like death. That's that's right. I, I completely agree with that. It, it, by focusing you on that in a positive way, certainly not by you know wasting time on being afraid of it, just right. adjusting your behaviors to think, to think Every once in a while, how if if this is my last day, is it have I done what I want to do? If not, then should I be doing something different in case soon is my last day? Right. Uh, you know, it, for me, it was a, a big. It was something personal that was close to me that reminded me of this and and pushed me that way. Uh, but yeah, it's 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 something for everyone to think about and being focused on doing what you want to do and getting your goals achieved. That's, that's a great result of something like this. You described before not being able to breathe. And in our communications previously, you had mentioned that, that not being able to breathe really twists a person and twists their focus and just, just creates almost a culture of constant fear to some degree. So can you describe a little bit more about how not being able to breathe necessarily well twists a person in the way that they act it's it's more important than anything else and you don't think of it that way because you always think you can breathe until you can't and in the back of your mind there is this in the back of my mind there is this fear of not being able to breathe and and it's I think though when I when I say that it, it twists you is it um, you always have this reminder 
that you might not be able to breathe. And uh, I mean, it, in, in some ways, this is, this has twisted me in most ways. This has twisted me in a good direction or rather it has, it has focused me on doing the things, doing the things I wanted to get done. Uh, so for the most part, this has been good, but it's been a strong influence on me. And that might've been a better way to phrase that. It, it's twisted. A strong influence on your life. Sure. It's twisted me to, to think about what I want to do and, and to live as if uh, suddenly I might not be able to breathe and, and what I at least have lived up until that point in a way that I was, was uh, happy with. Right. Yeah, I mean, we, we were mentioning that before. It's also, it happens to be a quote from Ethics of the Fathers as well. It says, you know, uh, live each day as if it's your last. Uh, yeah, that's a great advice. Let's kind of like turn, veer over into sailing. How did you get into sailing? I was, shortly after I, I got the better asthma medicines and began to be able to do a lot more outside, I got, I was reading the Boy Scout manual is how I got interested in canoeing. I'd never been in a canoe, but I was fascinated by the idea and I of, of canoeing of canoeing. Yeah. Yes. I'd saved up enough money from my newspaper delivery routes that I had enough money to buy a canoe. So I told my parents I want to buy a canoe and I'm 12 or 13. And they said they were not water people. They had grown up in Saskatchewan in the middle of the continent and they, they had never, or, or maybe once gone canoeing and it was uh, a scary experience. But other than that, you know, we, we just, they just weren't water people. And they said, no, you're not. <laughs> and, <laughs> so, and, and I wasn't, I wasn't happy with that. So, but they, they found there was these free sailing lessons for kids in Toronto at the time. And so they said, why don't you go on this, take the, do this sailing thing. And I said, okay, so I'll do this sailing thing. So I, I, I went down and it was a, I got on this boat full of kids where someone was telling us what ropes to pull and, and all this. And it was just so cool that we were moving along just with the wind. I thought, this is absolutely awesome. I mean, forget canoeing. I, I want to do this sailing thing. So it turned out much better that way, huh? <laughs> it, it turned out very, very well. I uh, got on a training ship for kids and then I, I, I worked with them over the winter. I, I, studied Friday on, on their, they had a school Friday nights and then Saturday and Sunday you worked on their boat. And then if you did all that, they would, uh, you would sail with them all summer training other people in sailing. It was, it was a great experience for a few years and it got me a lot of, uh, quite a bit of sailing experience. I think I sailed 6,000 miles in total doing that. Doing, one second, you sailed 6,000 miles just doing that program. Just doing that over, over three summers. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. So that was all in the Great Lakes, sailing around the Great Lakes, uh, right. mostly Lake Ontario. And yeah, it was, it was a great experience that taught me a lot about uh, sailing and, and, and outdoor things, planning ahead, you know, because uh, on a, when you're sailing, you have to plan ahead. Because unless the boat is, is really small and you can just muscle everything, you, you have to think in terms, if, if the wind picks up, right. how you're going to handle that sail can be bigger it gets bigger than you well you better have had a plan to to, to handle that um, before the forces get bigger than you right and have started getting it into motion yeah right see when you said planning ahead i started thinking you know just going on a multi-day expedition and making sure to plan for enough food and enough enough supplies like that but that's that's a really good point especially um you know i, I was reading through some of your materials and i saw you've done some 
long distance solo sailing and it's the same idea, right? Yeah. There's an awful lot of planning for uh, long distance sailing. You know, you're, you're entirely self-contained. You've, you've got to have all your food. You've got to have your tools, your repair materials, because stuff breaks all the time. You, you've got to fix stuff. Right. But I mean, when you're on the sailboat completely by yourself, you need to you know, have a plan in mind. Okay, well, if I need to move the sail to do this, then here's the 20 steps that I have to do beforehand. So if I want to move it in 30 minutes, I got to start now, right? That's correct. Yeah. You've got to plan ahead so that if, if you think the wind's going to pick up and you need less sails up, then you've got to think, you've got to be getting them down before the wind does pick up. Right. Because once they're full of wind, they're, they're so hard to handle. And then the boat's healing over and it, it's hard to, to move around. Uh, you know, the boat may not be under control at that point, And you're just, everything is a struggle. If you have taken too long, if you have not anticipated it, everything is a struggle. Things may be too big for you. You may not have the physical strength to, to do it. And then at that point, what do you do? You, you cut ropes. That, I mean, that, that's a very bad situation to be in. Right. right. You don't want to do that. Yeah. What are the sailboats that you currently own? I have a 50 foot schooner that I have sailed around the Americas in. So I've gone from the Arctic to the Antarctic in it around the North and South American continents. And that is currently ashore in Northeast Newfoundland. It's being stored there before my next, until my next adventure. And I am currently living aboard and sailing a, a 26 foot sailboat in near Toronto in Ontario on Lake Ontario. Now, I was out sailing yesterday. It was a nice. First, yeah, it was, it was really nice. The ice finally broke up and we were able to, to get out. I've been stuck in harbor for many weeks because there was too much ice to chop through to get out. And being in, being in a boat and not being able to sail it, I find a frustrating experience, I think. I think many people would, unless they're afraid of sailing, in which case, why are they in the boat? <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, actually living on a, on a boat is... It has its nice things. I mean, it's it's, it's not comfortable. It's not convenient. Uh, you have to fix everything that, that goes wrong. But, you know, you get rocked to sleep or rocked awake. And you get, you know, there's this a bunch of swans. I, I'm, I, I put on the headphones for this so that we wouldn't get any background noise. But if I open the, the hatch and... There's a, there's a lot of swans that keep coming around and they're pretty cool to, to see. They're, they're also somewhat loud, but you have this wildlife around you and you're, you're kind of close. You're closer to nature than you are in an apartment. And sure. It's, it's, it's nice for that. Yeah. My dad spent a long time living in sailboats, living in boats. Oh. Uh, maybe he had a houseboat for a while, but he also had a sailboat for a while. Oh, okay. That's great. Unfortunately, that part of his life was over before I came around, so I never really got to go sailing with him or anything like that. You know, I mean, he's been sailing since then, but only like once or twice. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, living on a boat, I mean, I could, I could totally imagine doing that. I, I don't know that I'm typical. <laughs> you, know? you may, you may not be. You, you like the outdoors. I like sleeping in a tent on the side of a mountain too. So you know, sleeping on a boat just doesn't doesn't seem to to bother me. But I mean, uh, it's really cool that you get to do that. Really nice. Yeah, I'm happy, and it's it's actually good for my asthma too to be on the water. Oh, interesting. Because what the extra airflow? There's less things to be allergic to okay. on the water. The the air is better, at least compared to being in a city. Yeah, it's weird. Like when I come down from being at even moderate elevation and I get back down to like sea level, I it's like the air gets thick for me. It's it's really weird how I can sense the extra thickness of the air. Mm -hmm. 
And to some degree, I kind of prefer being at least at the higher, you know, at least five to 8,000 feet, something like that or more. Uh, like last summer, I came back from Yosemite, where we spent most of our trip at 8,800 feet and above. But I got off the plane in Philadelphia, and I was like, whoa, it's it's kind of thick over here. <laughs> it's <was> interesting. <laughs> yeah, that's it's great when you're out in the wilderness. Yeah. When you get away from the city and the smog, it's the air is a lot nicer. And yeah, I, I, I can see it being better at higher elevations. Yeah. Back in 2008, I believe you said you were working in a, you told me before that you were working in a bank. That's correct. And then we had that whole crazy financial meltdown. Yep. But ultimately for you, it ended up being kind of a really good thing, right? It was an opportunity. <laughs> an opportunity. There you go. That's the way to put it. Can you bring us through that, that little experience over there and what you did afterwards? So I had, I had bought a boat in France. I'd been looking for a particular boat to go to high latitudes with. And I finally found this boat. I'd actually been looking for three years. I, I, I really liked this design. There was a few of them made, not many. And it took three years before one finally came on the market. So I, I bought it. And, and that was in, in the winter. Um, so I started arranging to get the boat. I was going to bring it back to New York. I was living in New York then. And I tried to arrange to, to get three months off from work to uh, sail my boat back in the summer. Um, so, you know, I, I gave them many months of notice, but the approval for that was taking a long time because the, the banking meltdown was starting. And, and, and by the time, you know, I was close to the departure date, I had crew arranged. I had every, everything was arranged and they said, you know, we, we cannot uh, keep your job. We're, we're going to be laying off in three months from now. And so just don't come you know, back. I, I just quit. Oh, you quit. <laughs> You know, we were all on good terms about it. The fact was they felt they would be laying off. And no, they can't, can't say to one person that, yeah, you can go take three months off and then come back and we're going to lay off other people. You can't do that. And, and at the same time, I, I go and change my plan. And right. no one really wanted me to. Yeah, I thought, well, I'll come back when the economy improves. And, <laughs> and you know, I, I kept in touch and, and the economy did not improve. <laughs> There was there was no point in, in getting back to New York, and my boat needed a lot of repair, so it wasn't. Yeah, I ended up just starting a, a five year trip with it before I went back to work, and I went a five year trip. Yeah, and I went down to South America first to to do a refit. Mostly that was an economical thing. The France was a very expensive place to fix a boat, and the boat needed a lot more work than I thought it did. And it, oh, this is the boat you just bought. Yeah. And it needed a ton of work. It needed a ton of work. So we fixed and sailed and fixed and sailed and got down from France to Spain to the Canaries, spent three months in the Canaries working on the boat and, and, and then went down to Argentina and, and Argentina and Brazil and, and did refits over a couple of years in Argentina and Brazil and, and in between doing a lot of sailing to understand what it is I wanted to change about stuff and getting the boat ready. Right. And, and then I sailed it up to Greenland and through the Northwest Passage. It was actually took me four attempts to get through the Northwest Passage. That's going from uh, going to Greenland, that's going then going across the north of Canada and the north of Alaska and around Alaska. And that's that's the Northwest Passage. And it's it's a very difficult thing to do. And, and it's very ice dependent, weather dependent. You know, it depends okay. what the ice does that year, depend, which has a lot to do with the wind directions. 
so you did the Northwest Passage on your boat. That's correct. Yeah. And then you brought the boat back around to where? Did you? You didn't leave it up in the Bering Sea, did you? No, I I wintered in Sitka, Alaska, in the southeast part of Alaska, because it was just two days before Thanksgiving when I got to Sitka, and it was it was just so difficult to keep moving. Talk about cutting a cord. <laughs> yeah, I'm surprised. <laughs> I'm surprised you were able to actually get anywhere at that point. I mean, that's it was the weather pattern. So I was now in the in the inside passage. So you're in this group of islands, and there's you got shelter behind islands. Okay, so you can go. There's there's tons of hundreds of places you can anchor and take shelter from storms. But the weather pattern I was seeing was five to seven days of gales and storms, followed by two days of the winds being below gale force, which I would consider a traveling day. Oh. But it was quite difficult when the majority of the days you couldn't travel on. And when it's really cold and the wind, when it's windy and cold, as in well below, as in below freezing, right. an additional real problem is that spray from the wind will freeze on your boat. So you get this coating of ice on your boat and you know, above the deck. So not only does the deck become a skating rink that is dangerous to, to get around on, but uh, the ice goes higher up and you have right. to knock it off because otherwise you get all this weight up high. I mean, ships, this is a major problem for uh, boats and boats and, and ship boats overturn with this and freezing spray is a, is a major danger. And that's what you get in okay. October and November because you've got the high winds and the suddenly cold temperatures. You don't get it later in the winter because the water's frozen and it's all ice and no one's, and you're not in a boat. But yeah, so I, I decided I'd winter in Sitka, which was great. And then I went down to Vancouver and I, spent a couple of years working in Vancouver. I'm just like looking at a map at, you know, where you were. Uh, it's really amazing that you were able to make it that far up until, because like I would think that really October, November would start getting just full ice and the fact that you were able to get that far. Sounds like you made it in the nick of time. I was stuck for a month in, oh. uh, in the northeast part of the Gulf of Alaska, a place called Yakutat. Uh, just the weather, winter weather pattern came early that year and it, I only had to go 150 miles along the coast and then I'd be into the inside passage. But so that time when you're along the coast, you've, you've got to complete that in one go because if a, you know, there's no shelter, if a storm comes up and we were getting 48 hours between storms and, and that was the weather pattern. And I had to fight, go against the wind and fight this current that was also against me. And so the 150 miles, it sounds like nothing. <laughs> I kept thinking it was nothing, but it was three times I attempted it and turned back because I was afraid that I wasn't, didn't have enough time before the next storm right. to get into a, a strange port and anchor or dock, depending on where it was, well enough for a storm. And, and given also there's, there's very few hours of daylight, you know, so you're entering in a, in the darkness. Right, right, right. I mean, but also people, I think people don't realize that in a sailboat, you're not moving at 60 miles an hour like you are in a car. Yeah. What's your max speed over there? Uh, under motor, it's five knots. Under sail, it's it's eight. But you can't you can't go against the wind, right? If you to go against the wind, you have to zigzag back and forth and in front of it. And right, which increases the amount of distance. Yeah, and in my boat, it pretty much doubles the amount of distance. So it's wow. uh, that ridiculously small number of 150 miles. I, you know, I'd, I'd come thousands and and then 150 miles. It, it seems so so much like nothing, but yeah, it, it caused me a delay of, of a whole month 
before the finally got three days of winds less than gale force and made it and got into the inside passage but and that was made things easier but yeah then it got into that weather pattern of five to seven days of gales and storms followed by one to two days with winds below that that i could travel in yeah that brought me to two days before thanksgiving and then you Mm. you arrive two days before thanksgiving well you might as well stay for thanksgiving and you might as well just stay for the winter (laughs) so that was that interesting let's move on to kayaking if that's okay yep so your kayaking experiences you've got how many miles do you have in sailing have you logged Uh, about eighty thousand. Eighty thousand. yeah wow and how many miles have you logged kayaking 3200 3200 yeah okay but i mean it's a big difference because with the sailing it's wind powered and then the kayaking it's all arm powered right yeah absolutely you don't go nearly as fast in the kayak right right so what are some of the places that you've kayaked in i've i've been all the way down the mackenzie river and the Yukon River. That's where most of those miles come from. Where's the Mackenzie? So the Mackenzie River starts is in the Northwest Territories in Canada, and it drains Great Slave Lake, which is uh, a, a really big lake in the southwest part of the Northwest Territories, and it goes pretty much straight north to the Arctic Ocean. And it's a thousand miles long. Oh wow! And the the Yukon River starts in, in northern British Columbia, almost in the Yukon Territory. And it winds through the Yukon Territory, and then it winds all across the middle of the of Alaska, so the interior part of Alaska, until it, it goes to the the Bering Sea on the west edge of Alaska. Oh my! Yeah, I'm like looking at maps, and these are these are huge. In case you've never seen them, it's like a really big lake that almost rivals the Great Lakes, right? This Great Slave Lake. Yeah, yeah, it's it's really big. Uh, I always get confused because the the spaces on the maps, the projection makes things look a little distorted up north. But uh, it it is a very big lake. Great Slave Lake is very big. Yeah, and and so you've done the the Yukon and the Mackenzie. Yeah, that's where most of that. That was about three thousand miles, and, and then the the other two hundred miles is I've done since then in mostly in Ontario and uh, New York State. So, which trip was it that your event happened on? Is that the Yukon? Uh, yeah, that's the Yukon. So my first trip, I learned to kayak by paddling, by buying a kayak, getting it shipped up to the Northwest Territories on Great Slave Lake. And then I paddled 50 miles along Great Slave Lake and then 550 down the Mackenzie River to the town where I was living in at the time. And then my second trip was to paddle the rest of the way down the Mackenzie River. And my third trip was to paddle that then I'd, I lived in Whitehorse in the Yukon Territory, and my third trip was to paddle as far as to the Yukon River as far as Whitehorse, down to as far as Whitehorse. And then my fourth trip was my longest one, and that was to paddle as far as Dawson City, because I'd moved to Dawson City then. Uh, and that was to paddle from Dawson City all the way across Alaska, and then to go to the Bering Sea, and then to go 300 miles along the coast of Norton Sound on the Bering Sea and end up in Nome, Alaska, which is the only the only town of any size in that part of, in anywhere near where the Mackenzie River exits in, in the Bering Sea in Alaska. Okay. So that took me, I think that took three months. And it was, it was a great trip uh, until the end. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
I was delayed due to weather and also the weather gets harder uh, later in the season and more towards the coast than in the inland sections. And the current doesn't help you as much towards the coast. The coast, is, it's very low. There's not much current and there's a lot of, there's a lot of, the channel is not obvious, right? There's a lot of shifting sandbars and stuff like that. Oh, wow. Okay. So it gets much more complex. Yeah. And then, and then you've got to pick your weather to, to paddle along the coast to. Oh yeah. If it gets too choppy, then there's no way you're getting out there. Yeah. And I mean, it, it looks very appealing to go straight across because that would save a lot of time, but that's a long crossing that if the weather came up straight across where Norton sound, I'm thinking it's a hundred miles across, but maybe it's only 50. I don't remember. Any, anyway, it didn't seem at all practical. It's, it seemed uh, overly dangerous to think about going straight across. It seemed like the right way to do that was to go along the coast in a kayak. Right. And you know, that, yeah, it looks can be deceiving. On a map, it doesn't look like a lot, but <laughs> that's a lot to go in the open sea on a kayak. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a long distance. Whatever that distance is, it's a long distance. And uh, for paddling uh, in the open ocean with nowhere to go if, if, if the wind, wind picks up. Uh, absolutely. So I, I'm into September at this point. And, and September, just to remind our listeners, that far up north, September is almost winter, right? It's almost turning into winter. Yeah, so the... The conditions you have, the air temperature is below freezing. There's half an inch of snow on the ground. And all the, the water in the, the puddles is it's got about a half an inch of ice on top of it. So that's the, that's the conditions. You know, it's, it's called autumn, but it's cold. And it's, it's a hard time. And I, I'd been waiting for weather for quite a while. And then I, I got a good weather forecast. And I just went and I, I paddled all day. I was really tired after paddling all, all day. And I, I remember I was going straight into the sun, going straight west. And the sun is low in the sky up north. It doesn't come up as high as it does in the lower latitude. It kind of just comes a, a fair ways above the horizon. And then, it, then it circles around and never goes over your head and comes down. And it doesn't come down very fast. So I'm staring right ahead is this big sun. So I can't see anything else. And it was before the days of GPS. So I'm paddling along the coast, about a half mile offshore, off the beach, and just paralleling the beach. And I'm looking for a cabin, and, and the cabin's on a river, and that's where I wanted to camp for the night. I had 40, 20 or 40 miles, like 40 miles left to go to Nome. Anyway, I was going to go a long distance this this day. And... So I'm tired after paddling for 12 hours straight and I can't really see what's ahead of me because I've got this big sun in my eyes and I either pa- I passed, must have passed over a shallow spot and all of a sudden the waves went from three feet to six feet and the water's breaking everywhere and it rolled me overnight. I, got back, I could not get the boat back up and keep it up and I bailed out and I, I tried to turn, I could easily turn the boat back upright, but I, I couldn't get back in the boat and it's really cold. I, I'm starting to think about my options. I'm, I'm thinking, well, you know, maybe I can keep fighting this. Maybe I can keep trying to, to right the boat and get, and get myself back in. But I know I'm going to lose coordination as the hypothermia sets in, and I know it's going to set in. Uh, and do I have time to do that? And I thought, well, what if, if I tow the boat farther away from the shore, I, you know, swim it and at a 
roping about. Uh, swim it farther out. I can get into calmer seas. Maybe I can do that. I thought of maybe. I, I, all I could think was maybe I could do it. Maybe I couldn't. Hard to say. And I, and I, I felt the pressure of I'm going to lose my coordination from the hypothermia and I have to, I have to get out of the water, whether that's into the boat or away from the boat. I thought about it and I decided my best bet was to swim to shore, to abandon the boat without the boat. I also considered bringing the boat to shore, but I, I, that would slow me down too much. Okay. So I, all your supplies were in the boat. That's correct. All my supplies were in the boat. I had a, a floater coat that I was either wearing or put on in the water. What's a floater coat? It's a, it's a hypothermia survival coat. It's a PFD and it's, it just looks like a regular jacket, but it, it has 15 pounds of flotation in it and it's a uh, closed cell form that'll keep you warm. Okay. Like insulation, like a coat that works in the water. That's right. It's, it's designed to work in the water and to, uh, prevent hypothermia and it's got a little diaper that'll go uh, a neoprene diaper that you pull fold down and put her around to to reduce heat loss from your crotch and it, it it's got a bunch of features to to reduce heat loss and so okay. I, I kicked off my rubber boots so now i was barefoot and i swam ashore and and it took me about half an hour i had a watch it took me about half an hour to get to get to shore and i get to shore i'm so glad to be ashore. So I, I, I know I have to start a fire. So I go to stand up to start a fire and I, I, my legs don't work anymore. You know, I, they, I don't have the coordination <laughs> to stand up. I just fell right down. As soon as I stood up, I just fell right over. I, I could not stand. And so I start crawling up the beach, looking for stuff to build a fire with. Now I, I, I'm really, at this point, I'm really good at building fires because I cooked all my meals on fire. So I'm really good at starting fires. I, I know I mean, it's above the tree line, but there's all kinds of driftwood that comes down the Yukon River and then is distributed sure. on the shore. So there's no shortage of firewood. I Above the tree line, meaning too far north for the tree line, for trees? That's that's correct. Trees don't grow that far north. Yeah. Wow. Okay, fine. Above the tree line, I'm thinking in, in terms of a mountain where above a certain number of feet, but okay, I didn't realize that trees don't grow up north also. Yep. For the same reason as, uh, as above a certain number of feet. Yep. Uh, sure. I, I neglected to bring the birch bark from the from the boat but anyway i had i still was capable of starting a fire but my trouble was that i I kept passing out from the hypothermia and (laughs) you know there's 15 knots of wind running so you know you've you've got the wind to blow things out and i had five different fire starters with me and that all sounds you know because you're trying to be prepared what I found was so many of them I couldn't actually use, like the, the waterproof matches. You know, my fingers are so, I barely have the use of my fingers because I got so much hypothermia. So I don't have the coordination. I can't actually hold the matches. If I, so I, I try putting the match in my teeth and dragging the striker across, but the wind blows it out. I have these, these little Bic lighters and you know, you're supposed to light them with your thumb. Well, I, I, my thumb doesn't work well enough to light them. So I, I try holding them in one hand and, and dragging the, the palm of the other across, trying to make it strike. And it, it doesn't work. Um, I had another little thing, some magnesium stick and flint and something. I, I don't know. I remember it, it didn't work. So, you know, I, I've got this wind problem. And I kept passing out from the hypothermia. And I, I kept waking up after that. Uh, which I didn't know that happened, but anyway, I, it, it does. And so I would pass out. So you're 
drifting in and out of consciousness, trying to get a fire started. Nothing's working. Yep. And I just keep getting myself farther up the beach and get more stuff to build a fire with. And then finally I came to my last fire starter and I, I had on my little teepee of, of twigs and, and larger sticks and, and some other branches nearby. And, and then my last fire starter was in my floater coat. I had aerial a pocket with aerial flares in it. So they, you know, you're supposed to shoot them up in the air so people will see you and rescue you. And that's something that once it starts burning, it doesn't stop burning. So you're never supposed to fire them at something because of the danger of them bouncing back at you. And then you've got something hitting you that doesn't stop burning. (laughs) You don't want that. that. But this was, this is my last, this is the only thing I had left. I, I had failed to start the fire every other way I tried. So I fired this into my little teepee of, of twigs and sticks and it didn't bounce back and it, it set that on fire and I built the fire from there. So now I find after five and a half hours, cause I had my watch, I knew this, I finally had a fire going and, you know, I, I got that fire going. I built a windbreak from logs. I huddled beside that fire all night. I got rid of the worst of the hypothermia. And then in the morning I can, the sun is no longer in my eyes and I can see this cabin and it's, it's a mile and a half away. And I know that this cabin is on a river and that the road goes by it. So I don't know if it's inhabited or not, but I know that if I can just get to the cabin, I can get to the road. And if I can get to the road, I can build a fire in the middle of the road and, and wait till someone comes along. I mean, it's, this is, if I can just get there, um, I'm going to be okay. But between me and the cabin and the road is a mile and a half of tundra and, and four small rivers. So I, I, I'm in bare feet. I've got, I've got a little folding pocket knife that I could have cut my spray skirt, which I still had to wrap something around my feet. But I, I the, the folding pocket knife at a, a wooden handle, which is swollen and made it difficult to open. And then my fingers, they're working a lot better, but they're not working well. And I couldn't open the darn knife. <laughs> so I have this knife and I couldn't use it. Oh, <laughs> so I, I waited till low tide. So I figured the rivers would have less water in them and I could more likely wade across and, and not have to swim. So, you know, it'd be, it'd be warmer if you're wading them. Except for your feet. Except for your feet. <laughs> <laughs> the feet, I, I had, it, it had only been the last few weeks that I'd started wearing boots up until then. I had always launched the worn bare feet in the kayak and I just launched the boat in bare feet in the, the cold water. And, and I had really good circulation in my feet, but yeah, I, I, I waited a few hours and then I, I got a walking stick and I set off across the frozen tundra in bare feet. And I walked a mile and a half across the tundra and I, I get to the, finally I get to the, the river where the cabin is. This is the biggest river. Nothing's, nothing's big, right? It's, I don't know, 100 feet across, 50 feet across. It's, I'm surveying, I'm, I'm leaning on my walking stick, surveying where I'm going to try to walk across the river, you know, so I can do more wading and less swimming. And someone is on the other side and they see me and I just want to jump for joy. <laughs> yeah, I can't talk. I drank a lot of salt water accidentally while, while swimming ashore. And that's, that's all I've had to drink for 18 hours. And I could barely move my arms, you know, with a lot of focus and a lot of mm. pushing. I can, I can walk, I can move, I can do all that, but you know, I, I really don't have good use of anything right now. I, I could barely move my arm to wave at him. 
but he saw me. He came over. He had a, I remember he had a, he had a little rowboat with a hole in it. And I got me, I managed to, I could just tell him that I'd lost my kayak in the sea last night and that I was alone and took me up to the cabin and they put me in front of a fire, wrapped me in warm blankets, fed me hot drinks. And then I took me to the hospital and I ended up spending six weeks in hospital. Mm. First, they said I was likely to to lose my feet due to third degree frostbite. But I, I, I think I had very good circulation from from having launched my kayak in near freezing water and bare feet for a long time. Right. Or, or that was an indication that I had good circulation in my feet. Anyway, I, I did manage to keep all my toes and my feet and took a couple months to learn to walk again, but I, I managed to come out of it whole. (laughs) Uh, yeah, I I lost the boat. At that point, it wasn't just the hypothermia that was messing up your, you had to relearn to walk again because of the frostbite or because of the, the muscle coordination from the hypothermia. Well, after you haven't walked for a couple, you know, you got all new skin on your feet and you haven't walked for, for six weeks and you've got to avoid putting too much pressure on all that new skin. And so uh, the muscles have, have atrophied and it took a couple months before I was, you know, walking without a cane. I was, I was having to use a cane to, to help with the balance, you know, you, to fully, get fully functional. Don't need a cane anymore. I can walk like a normal person. Yeah. That took two months. Oh my. That was really, that's the worst thing that's happened to me. And I, and it was, I was lucky that I managed to, get through that without any permanent damage or dying, yep. uh, which was, <laughs> I was, I was lucky. I'm glad for that. Uh, it was a good lesson for me in, in not giving up because I, I really had to push myself to do that. I, I had to push myself to swim ashore. I, to keep push focusing on getting that fire going because uh, you know, half, half awake drifting in and out of consciousness I, I really had to push to keep trying and, and nothing worked and, and to keep trying and thinking, what can I possibly do? And it's, you know, it's been a good experience later in life to have gone through something like that, to keep you focused on, on don't give up on keep thinking what you can possibly do to, to make this work, to, to get by. Exhaust all options. Yeah. When you were in the midst of that experience, did you, have any thoughts that maybe you would die? I was quite afraid that I would die. I had to, I, I kept yelling out, I will survive. I will survive. I will survive. Just you know, yelling that out. Did you sing it or yell it? Yell it. I yelled it as loud as I could. Okay. <laughs> Cause from the song, I was, know. I was actually using a lot of anger because I was really annoyed at myself for having gotten myself into this situation because I had screwed up. I mean, I had, I had been inattentive. You know, I had, I didn't see that all of a sudden I was about to get into a bigger waves. Like, you know, had I been inattentive because I'd been paddling for 12 hours and I had screwed up. I, I mean, you're not supposed to roll. You're supposed to keep them. You're supposed to keep it upright <laughs> or, right. or else not go out in conditions in which you can't keep it upright. And, I was really annoyed with myself and, and I focused on that anger for having screwed up and gotten myself into this situation. Cause I certainly had no one to blame except myself. Right. And so you use that anger to also try and pull yourself out because if, if you got yourself into that situation and allowed it to be the end, that would be even worse. Right. That's right. Yeah. And I also prayed, but I, I kept yelling out as, 
every minute at least. Well, no, more than every minute. I just kept yelling out, I will survive. I will survive. I will survive. Just yelling it as loud as I could and to keep myself as focused on that as, yeah. as I could. And, you know, that may have helped me wake up and, and continue building the fire. Uh, that focus. Wow. Any other mind-opening thoughts that you had while you were out in the middle of that experience? You know, walking across the frozen tundra, uh, wading through rivers with feet that you couldn't even feel that were probably wooden and possibly black? Did your feet get black or they were white? They got black later. They were they were white at the time. So, I mean, okay. the feet froze quickly, so I didn't feel the pain at the time. Walking, you know, they didn't work well. I had a, I just used a stick to, to help me walk. And... It was when I got to hospital and they thawed them out that that was when I learned what pain was. You know, I never realized just third degree frostbite. Oh, you know, it's wow. like a third degree burn. I mean, it's third degree is the worst, the least. It's the worst because it's, it's the, the okay. all the layers of the skin have thawed. Oh, fine. Okay. And the, got it. the treatment like a burn is, is that the body has to regenerate it and it has to not get infection until it regenerates it. And because Right. We've lost so much blood vessels in the skin, like the, the way for the body to deliver the antibodies to fight the infections that are in the air. Oh, it's through the blood. Space. Yeah, and it's very compromised because you don't have the skin. And the treatment is to stay uh, as clean as can be. And also, the, the better your circulation, the better a chance that you get through it without getting an infection, which I, if you get an infection, that's generally what they call gangrene, and then they have to cut it off because... You know, you're not capable of fighting a simple infection because you, you don't have the blood flow to, to get it there. But that's all later. Looping all the way back around to before when your parents uh, pushed you into, into sailing instead of canoeing <laughs> because of the danger. I didn't mean to blame them for that. <laughs> no, not to blame, not to blame. But I'm saying, were they aware of this whole thing? Were I don't they know. aware of this whole thing? I'm saying, did they find out about this? Yes. The, the kayaking incident? Kayaking trip? Yes, they did. And what did they, did they have anything to say? Uh well, they were quite concerned for my welfare. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, I phoned them from the, the hospital. So, yeah, yeah, they were well aware of it. Okay. How has your journey been impacted by the different things that you've experienced? My journey through life, you mean? Or my journey in a particular... No, just a journey through life. You know, that, that near-death experience is yet another reason to think in terms of live each day as if it might be your last. And, and I think it has been an additional incentive for me to, to think that way. Because if you like, like what I really want to do, and I, I really love travel and adventure travel and, and going to places by boats, difficult, challenging places. The, the trouble with that is that ultimately there is risk and, and you go to great lengths to reduce that risk as much as possible. If you're doing something that's, that's inherently dangerous, you realize the possibility does exist that you, you might not make it at any, any one time. And so that gives me an appreciation for what I have. Right. And, and it right. focuses me on that live each day as if it was your last kind of thinking. Absolutely. So I think we're going to wrap it up. And just one thing that I'd like to close out interviews with is one actionable thing for somebody to implement right now to help lead them on the path to greatness, the continued path to success. Do you have any little bits of advice that you might leave our listeners with? Don't stop. Don't give up. If you keep trying, 
what you're trying, uh, unless it's fundamentally wrong. It, it just, just keep trying something else. If, if at first you don't succeed, change it a little, try again, right? Don't lose sight of the goal. Right. Don't consider the goal unattainable. Your method you tried may not work, but the goal itself, figure out another way to do it. And just, just keep trying. Don't give up. Don't give up. All right. That's Richard Hudson, everybody. And Richard, if somebody wanted to get in touch with you to possibly have you uh, for any reason or to invite you to come speak to their audience, how would they get in touch with you? On my website, isuma.com, I-S-S-U-M-A.com. There's a presentations link there that's easy to find. Or or you can try me, richard.hudson at I-S-S-U-M-A.com on email. Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us today, Richard. All right. Thanks very much, Ari. Don't give up. Don't give up. You can't give up. What words to live by? Can you imagine being stuck out there on the frozen tundra, just having crawled out of an ocean like that, frozen feet in utter pain, trying to light a fire, so incredibly cold and shaking that that you can barely keep awake and the only thought in your head is I will survive it's words like these don't give up keep on going keep at it that are literally what can take us from mediocrity from a regular life to the life that we've always dreamed of to the life that we want to live to the life that we want to design for ourselves that is everything we've always dreamed of and more. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Don't give up. Words to Live By by Richard Hudson, intrepid explorer, sailor, and more. Thanks for listening to The Way to Greatness. On September 26, 2019, Sharon Folk wrote a review on our podcast. She gave us five stars. She said, great discussion. Loved listening to your interview with Joe about how he came up with the Mojovation concept. Sharon is a marketing manager. Check her out on LinkedIn. Are you going to help us on our way to greatness with this podcast? Make sure you go and leave a review. Make sure you hit that subscribe button. Cha-ching. That'll go ahead and help all of us. Thank you for listening to the Way to Greatness podcast, where we explore the journey from failure and mediocrity to success and greatness. Keep moving on your way to greatness. Join us next week for more stories, inspirations, and interviews to help you achieve the greatness within you.